What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Wayfinder Podcast. Robert Grant with us today. Robert Grant, what's happening? Hey, how you doing? Good, brother. We uh, <laughs> good to be here. Thanks for thanks for having us and letting us come invade your office. With Welcome all of our to shit. my office. <laughs> we just come in here with all of our shit. Exactly. We're like, let us in. We're here to see Robert. <laughs> We're just dragging big bags. You can and... stay one night. <laughs> <laughs> can we sleep on the couch, please? Yeah, no doubt. The girls kicked us out of the hotel. What a what a beautiful uh, place you've got here. Um, of course, we get to L.A. and we're like the lucky bastards that roll in with all the unseasonal rain and temperatures. Yeah, this is so not normal. So it was like normal. 50 degrees on the beach. Right. This is not normal. <laughs> I got frostbite on my toes trying to get in the water. Yeah. This is what they call May gloom. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that you guys ever had anything gloomy happen in L.A. I thought it was just It doesn't happen badass. very often. It's only when we have visitors. <laughs> That's the way it usually happens. But we're glad to be here anyway, and we're having the best the best time. Cool. We're having a really good time, and uh, we do appreciate you having us. Uh, you just dragged me into a really interesting um, web WebEx yeah. with some really interesting people. And for anyone who um, doesn't know who Robert is or what Robert does or what Robert is, um, uh, longtime businessman, uh, inventor, entrepreneur, polymath, um, which is, of course, artist, sculptor, musician, uh, scientist, mathematician, all these wonderful things. And um, one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, you know. Well, uh, you can pay me for that later. <laughs> okay, Those compliments okay. cost. Um, and so just a really a really interesting dude. And we're going to have a great conversation today because awesome. we're going to bounce all over the place. Yeah. You know. I'm excited. I, I'm into ancient civilizations. You're into ancient civilizations. Me too. And um, anybody who's been on this podcast much knows that we really dig into ancient Egypt quite a bit. Uh, ancient monuments of all kinds. It's definitely one of my very high interests. Yeah, it's a big thing. And one of the cool things that, that I love about your work is that you're always, uh, you're digging into the math behind all these monuments and the architecture and um, tying that, of course, in, into the mm -hmm. language and the belief systems and the culture that was taking place in these, in, in these places in the distant past. What are the implications of that? Why the hell would you spend your time doing that? Why does it matter? You know, first of all, I um, I tend to come at things from a language language perspective or linguistics perspective, and and uh, the reason is because I've learned several languages in my life. I How many languages in, do you know? I I speak eight languages. Um, I I speak really fluently uh, about six languages, and uh, but I have good working knowledge of probably several other languages, but more like twelve or so. Yeah, and. Um, I don't usually claim that many languages on, you know, discussions and stuff like that because it just sounds like you're a weirdo, right? If you speak that many languages, you must work for the UN or something. <laughs> but for me, it was just kind of a hobby. My first uh, language that I learned after English was Korean, and I was 19 years old. And then Annyeonghaseyo. Annyeonghaseyo. Yeah, yeah. Kamsamnidao. 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 Yeah, yeah. My buddy, my buddy runs a donut shop. Oh, really? And every time I go in to see him, I'm like, you know, say, oh, you know, you try to do the traditional little bow mm -hmm. thing, you know? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. all I know, though. It was as a, far as my Korean goes. Korean is, the, is actually the second most difficult language for English speakers to learn. Really? What's the Finnish first? Finnish is apparently the first most difficult language. So did you, you ever heard of, the, heard of a guy named Daniel Tammet? He's, a, he's got uh, synesthesia. 
He's a famous guy with synesthesia. I think I have, yes. You probably mm-hmm. have, because mm-hmm. he's a weirdo like you. He's like really smart. <laughs> Great. Knows all kinds of shit. Uh, but he learned like Icelandic or something like that in a really? plane ride. Mm-hmm. Like he was going to do a talk show in, in Iceland or something, and he like learned Icelandic to a conversational level on, on, on the way over there. Wow. Makes me think uh, of some, thing, some kind of shit that he He must do. not be a very high achiever. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's something. He's something. Uh, yeah. So language is a big part of what you do. Yes, to say absolutely. The so that's kind of the angle that you're coming from when you're looking at this stuff. It's the angle that I come at when I look at a lot of things because le- language is about pattern recognition. Right. And I really enjoy the pattern recognition. And when you apply linguistic kind of analysis to mathematics, you find patterns right away. And what you'll notice is in mathematics, just like language, there are verbs and there's nouns and there's pronouns and all of those things. And, and actually in math, the, the words are numbers. The verbs are math constants. And the geometry inscribed within circles organizes the syntax of language, of mathematics. That's incredible. I only halfway even know what you mean there, but I get it. <laughs> I get it. So think of syntax as sort of the sentences and and sort of the, the, the larger communication bytes that we're trying to take in. Sure. Right? And mathematics is the universal language. Yep. So when I look at um, pretty much anything now, I tend to look at it from a linguistical mathematical perspective. And that's true with architecture, it's true with ancient culture, it's true with consciousness. And um, applying that different way of, of looking at things linguistically, uh, also marrying in with that, uh, what we refer to as the quadrivium, which is um, sort of a knowledge of, of geometry, arithmetic, um, music, and uh, encompassing within that also is art, as, as well as astronomy, when you, and, and understanding the principles uh, that really reside within Hermeticism of as above, so below, then I, I think you can really understand the fractal nature of the universe and what it's trying to communicate to you, and what what you mean within that universal structure too. Sure, you mentioned the quadrivium. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's such a key thing to understand. Mm-hmm. Would you help us understand that? Well, you know, in ancient times, um, <laughs> uh, the, the whole notion of becoming a philosopher, and that's actually what we uh, use today in our terminology of PhD, right? right My dad used philosophy. to say to me that PhD meant piled higher and deeper. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I'll let you figure out what that might mean, but, uh, but, you know, doctor of philosophy used to mean someone who was really polymathic. So someone who had to become an expert in the quadrivium as well as the seven uh, total kind of uh, general education elements, sure. right? And, and today it really means that it's gone the exact opposite direction because what we refer to today when we talk about someone who has a PhD is someone who's very hyper-specialized right. in one area. You can't just be a biologist. It's very difficult to get a dissertation on biology. Yeah, you got to be so, like an amoeba-specialized evolutionary biologist. Well, right, you because be like the way deep. the scientific method works is that um, no one's going to let you write, you know, uh, a dissertation for a PhD dissertation or thesis on something as broad as biology. Right. It has to be so novel, and it has to be different. So there has to be a research element to it. And if it's going to be novel and different, it means you're talking about the nth degree of reductionism and specialization. So you can't just do biology it's got to be some you know particle physics within nanobiology right right and then that's what you say very very focused on and and that is the antithesis actually of what it means to be polymathic and philosophical so 
obviously you don't feel very like like hyper specialization is the best route for us to go if we want to if we want to push scientific progress that's you know one of the things i've always uh believed is that you know if if knowledge can't be applied to to help us in our lives then it's kind of wasted you know i think in a a lot of ways this this hyper specialization is kind of going that route where it's like we're we're getting to a point where maybe we're we're building mile-long underground structures to smash atoms together but there are a lot of other problems that we could probably solve that are a little bit more directly tied to the well-being of humanity if we had some more generalized thinkers on our hands. You know, usually the very best solutions to the biggest problems and most complex problems we face are derived when you apply thinking from one discipline to another discipline that that thinking has not been applied to before. Pairing things that nobody thought to pair and combining the thinking. Uh, And I see this all the time in healthcare and medicine. I see it all the time in science as well. Um, you know, when people start to understand that mathematics, in order to really understand a higher dimensional uh, perspective on mathematics, it requires musical training. Right. Um, in fact, I'll go as far as saying that in the future, in the not too distant future, and I feel very confident about saying this as well, if you're a mathematician that doesn't understand musical theory, you won't be able to be a mathematician within 10 years from now. Really? Yes. That's remarkable. Because music, the the harmonic series, is our numbering system. I wanted you to talk about that because that's one of the most beautiful things that, that you that you talk about in your work and um, not to derail into Walter Russell, but we'll get back into Walter here, here in just a little bit. But um, the understanding of math, uh, of numbers as working as musical notes and harmonics and chords, because then you start talking about harmonization and things like that. And, you know, I've had, you know, you and I have had discussions about sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. A lot of your work's oriented on sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll talk... Sacred geometry is like geometry that's organized into harmonic systems, mm-hmm. right? And th- that also sort of um, sort of demonstrate things about the nature of the universe and of reality. Mm-hmm. But it all comes back to music and to harmony and to balance. Talk about that. Well, I mean, you could think of geometry, and many of us here are probably aware of something called cymatics, where... Mm-hmm. Um, you could take a calandry plate, right, which would just be like a metal plate. And um, some time ago, I think it was this fellow named Calandry who took a violin, um, the strings of a violin, and basically rubbed them against the plate, right? And, and as they rub against the plate, it creates a sound frequency. And that frequency started organizing salt or sand, uh, as the case may be, into geometric patterns and shapes, and that's what we refer to as a sort of cymatic, uh, you know, analysis. And each note has a different shape. Right. And the higher the frequency of the note, so beats per second of the note, the more complex the shapes that emerge off of this plate. And this is formed by something called standing waves. So you could literally say that geometry itself is frozen sound. Wow. And, and so therefore geometry has resonance just like you would refer to notes having resonance. And it's just a visual resonance rather than an audible resonance. It's leaving a signature, just like sand on a standing wave from a musical note creates different shapes and cymatics. It's doing the exact same thing on the piece of paper or the art that you're looking at and saying, wow, that has some coherence to it. It has some resonance with me when I look at it. Is same, that a, same is true with architecture. Now, is that is that is that a new discovery? Is this something that we're just now finding out, or do you think that maybe somebody in the past understood things like this? I think it's ancient. Really, 
I think it's absolutely ancient. And, um, you know, I don't feel like anything that I have discovered, including the prime number pattern and the quasi Which primes, I want to get to in a minute. Um, I, I don't think any of it is really truly new discovery. And I, I, I believe that this is all knowledge that is part of the universe itself and that we as human beings all have the ability to tap into uh, and it really comes down to a choice. And that's very Russellian in, in the commentary because, you know, Walter Russell's famously quoted um, as having said, you know, that genius is self-bestowed and mediocrity is self-inflicted and that it's actually implies a choice around that. I love that, by the way. So for anybody who doesn't know, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, who Walter Russell is, just kind of a shotgun blast at that. You know, I could do it. Sure. But I'm just going to let you do that. <laughs> okay. Walter Russell... Um, uh, is a, a person that was born in the latter half of the 19th century. I think it was 1871. Um, he passed away in 1963. Uh, interestingly, his birth date was the same as his death date, so May 19th. Who else did that? Was it Mark Twain? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe there, there Mark was, Twain. I think it was Mark Twain. I think he, Mark Twain was, I don't know if his birthday and death day were the same, but he was born the day that Halley's Comet came through. Mm-hmm. And then he always said, I, I arrived on the comet and I'm going to leave on the comet. And then he died well, like 78, 75 years later when the comet came Well, through. interestingly, um, Mark Train is related to the story of Walter Russell because Walter Russell was the sculptor of one of the most famous busts of Mark Twain. Really? Mm -hmm. He's a very well-known artist and sculptor. He was the, the president of the, um, of, of the Society of Arts and Sciences in New York City. He was the founder, one of the co-founders of the Twilight Club, which included membership of people like J.P. Morgan, as well as uh, people, you know, really high society in New York, including uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who was another polymath um, and poet. I think a lot of people don't realize that Emerson was a polymath. Yeah, They're absolutely. They usually know him as a poet. And, and Emerson is one of my all-time favorite You've got oh, an Emerson sure. quote on your uh, your Instagram. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And I've, uh, that's always resonated with me, and I found it very beautiful. And there's another great quote by him, which is, if there were any one period in time one would desire to be born in, is it not the age of revolution? When old and new stand side by side and admit of being compared, when the energies of all men are searched by fear and by hope, and when the historic glories of the old can be compensated by the rich possibilities of the new era, this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. And I think that's a, a great frame for where we are in the world right now because I do feel like we're sort of standing on the precipice of just dramatic change and not the kind of change that has just been, you know, one world war to another type of thing. I'm talking about dramatic shift in understanding of who we are as a race, as a species. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very exciting because I think our understanding of what we are, who we are, and why we are here, I think is about to just take a massive leap in awareness forward. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Have you ever heard the term species with amnesia? Uh, no, but I can certainly piece together what it probably means. <laughs> You think we might be a species with amnesia? Do you think that maybe there's a forgotten episode in human history that we're unaware of? It probably is more likely than not. Um, yeah. and, and that's what I'm seeing in ancient sites all around the world. Uh, I just got back from Peru in November of this past year. Uh, I was in Egypt twice the year before. Um, and as I've studied 
you know, ancient sites, and I'm going to go to Mexico in a few months. I've already been to see the pyramids in Mexico, but I'm going to go again. And I'm fascinated by the harmonic nature and this understanding, this higher dimensional understanding of mathematics that was clearly evidenced by what is left behind in these ancient structures and that they comply perfectly to harmonic structure and to an understanding of number theory that we are only now possibly starting to remember again. Yeah. There's a, I've always felt like there was a, there was a misunderstanding within archeology span or just sort of an undereducation uh, in archeology span where, where a lot of these guys that are, that are really smart and that are well-meaning, well-intentioned people that are looking at, at these ancient sites and these ancient people, uh, you know, it's hard to find something when you're just absolutely not looking for it. And if you're not looking for advanced mathematical, you know, um, uh, orientations and stuff like that in these ancient sites, you're unlikely to find it, you know. Uh, do you think that the future of archaeology is going to demand of people that they have some working understanding of numerology and mathematics? I absolutely think that's the case. In fact, um, I'm uh, in frequent contact with... Uh, with a very famous archaeologist and, and geologist, uh, an Egyptologist by the name of Robert Schock, who is famous for many reasons, but probably most notable of his uh, discoveries and analyses is that he has dated the, the, the Sphinx. Of the Sphinx yeah. yeah, he's dated the Sphinx to, you know, at least sort of like eight thousand years old, rather than sort of the, you know, the dynastic Egyptian time period that most people think it would be, maybe like forty five hundred years old. And he's done that based on the analysis of uh, sort of rain uh, erosion on the Sphinx and when there would have been rain on the Sphinx, uh, you know, sometime around the time period of the Yunga Dryas and the, and the end of the Yunga Dryas. So I think uh, one of the things he said to me is that a lot of the next generation of Egyptology is going to have to uh, converge around a higher understanding of mathematics and analysis of mathematics, because he's starting to understand as well the role that that plays. And unless you understand the mathematical sort of linguistical uh, connection of, of all these very important numbers that relate to geometry, then it's very difficult to understand what has been left behind for us in these edifices that are uh, of stone architecture that are so powerful in giving us some messages that we may not even be able to capture just on the outside, but we know it resonates with us and we don't know why it resonates. And what we need to be able to understand is, is why the geometry resonates with us so well. Right. And, and why these ancient cultures left these structures behind for us. Yeah. I, I always wonder like, what would it be like to be inside the mind of an ancient Egyptian person or whoever building the pyramids? I mean, someone who understands math at that level, right? I mean, even someone like you and the guys that we were just on this this webinar with, mm -hmm. right? Walking around in, inside the head of someone like that. <laughs> I can only imagine. It might be terrifying. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds but, a little bit tiresome, to be honest right. with you. Uh, my head's tiresome enough. I don't need to know a bunch of math on top of that. Just make it worse. But the uh, the, the ancient people that, that constructed these sites, I mean, first of all, um, I've done enough research on, on these things, and you know that my, my background is really in ancient civilizations. That's what I love. And the connections there are pretty obvious, right? Everything's kind from, of undeniable. Yeah, it's undeniable at this point. Have you heard of Graham Hancock? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I've been in contact uh, with him, at least via email. Yeah. And I know he, he works closely with several of my other colleagues. And, um, you know, I think his work is, is, is fantastic. I think it's very, very smart. 
Uh, Randall Carson is someone he works very closely with, and Randall is what I would say is more the numerical geometrician. Now he, of, he's uh, a he's a sacred geometry master. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've actually spent some time with Randall and spent some uh, more time with with Grant. Absolutely, I'm hoping. Did you do? Uh, did you do a contact in the desert or something? I like did that last year. Recently, I did contact. Was in the Graham desert. at that? Um, I you guess know, not. I would came. Have run into him. I came a little late. It was right after I got back. It wasn't long after I got back from Egypt, um, where I had discovered uh, the first writing in the king's chamber on the sarcophagus, and uh, I found a, a 5.6 inch wide uh, marking, which was clearly uh, an alpha and an omega on the rim of the sarcophagus. Now that's kind of mind-blowing because most people know that historically it's always been understood. There's mm-hmm. no inscription of any kind inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. Yeah. None. Yeah. Right? And this well, is there like was the writing most... that was in the cartouche that's above the king's chamber and it uh, sort of this red the paint. The graffiti. That's sort of now been widely discredited um, as being left uh, potentially by the person who claims to have found it, uh, a person by the name of Vice. Uh, in uh, I think it was like 1836 and um, you know, he had been funded by some wealthy financiers and he needed to take something back with him when he found nothing in the Great Pyramid uh, like a treasure or otherwise of value and uh, and some believe that uh, and I believe Graham Hancock is one that that uh, the, the the writing that was left in the cartouche may have been falsified at that time and I think widely this is becoming more and more uh, the belief because that's the only place that we have any reference to connect it back to Khufu. And yeah. The pyramid today is referred to as the Khufu's Pyramid, pyramid of Khufu, right? yeah. And, and it doesn't even have the full name of Khufu, right? So uh, in, in the writing. So if, if you don't necessarily believe the story left by Vice, then you have to sort of come to the conclusion that there's been no other writing in the Great Pyramid. Um, and... And so I was stunned when I was there, and I, I spent three nights in the Great Pyramid from 2017 uh, through 2018. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how many people have ever done that before, but um, the last <laughs> night I did totally by myself. Sounds spooky was, as shit. It sounds spooky. <laughs> it sounds wasn't, really though. spooky. The funny part about it is it wasn't spooky. Uh, it was weird, I have to admit, the night really? I was there by myself. But I'd already been there two nights with other people, so I was like, I think I know what to expect. I heard somebody say that when they were inside of it, and they said, I felt like I was inside of a machine, and I felt like I wouldn't want to be inside when it was turned on. Yeah, well, you thought, know what? Definitely you might think, oh, if all of a sudden you start hearing things. What I can say is this, is that the King's Chamber and the sarcophagus itself has a very powerful resonance. And yeah. when you find the right resonance frequency of the sarcophagus, and you, you just go there by doing almost like an ohm chant, which mm-hmm. is you go, you don't even have to open your mouth. You just keep your mouth closed. You go, mm, just like that. And then you can take breaths in between. The chamber will continue to resonate, and it starts going, wah, 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 just like that, really, really loud, really loud. The, the king's chamber acts like a speaker amplifier. I heard that you can whisper from like, all the way down the hallway, like hundreds of feet away, and you can hear it in certain places. Yeah, in, yeah. Yes, in certain places in the uh, in the in the king's not in the king's chamber necessarily. It's pretty easy to hear everything there, but but uh, in the grand gallery, which is the only place you could be in the period where there might be somebody far away from you, yeah. uh, it definitely has great acoustics because the way the ceiling goes, you'll see that uh, you know, there's two pyramids that uh, that you can see this same phenomenon. 
uh, first it's in the queen's chamber where it's got this sort of like stair step looking pyramid two-dimensional shape right yep against the wall in the queen's chamber so it kind of like goes up together and the number of stair steps that you see is um i believe in the i may be wrong on this but because uh, i'm just doing it from memory but um i believe in the grand gallery it's like seven right stairs on the ceiling in the grand gallery coming towards a convergence in the red pyramid which is in Dashur, um you have 13 steps it's it's fascinating that the that they chose two different uh, sort of systems on there but the acoustics were equally good in both well i was going to ask you I've, I've heard that these maybe some of the different chambers were, were tuned to different harmonic resonances like to different like you know if you if you if you you know, do the ohm chant or whatever the hum at a certain frequency in one pyramid you get this sort of feedback resonance yeah and if you do it at mm -hmm. a different frequency in a different pyramid maybe with more steps or less yep. steps mm -hmm. then you get that resonance i know that some of the mayan pyramids down in the yucatan are that that way absolutely absolutely and i, I noticed that too and um you know there there's also a place right after you come out of the um of the grand gallery and there's sort of something called the great step and that great step spot happens to be right under the apex of the Great Pyramid. The King's Chamber is a little bit offset, mm -hmm. right? So you have to kind of go through this crawl passage to get into the uh, into the King's Chamber itself. And the King's Chamber has been built according to mathematics that is like incredible. I want you to talk about powerful. the math. Let's mm -hmm. talk a lot about the math, you know, in, in terms that, that people are, are gonna understand because we don't all have your brain, but like how does, how what is the math going on in these places? Because I know that, you know, just for, for for non-mathematicians out there, people like me, um, a, a lot of our current understanding of mathematics, the basics, come from ancient Greece as far as we knew, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of Pythagoras and these guys are gave us the gift of a lot of what we understand about the math that we that we use to solve all the problems that we have, whether mm -hmm. it's space mm -hmm. flight or underwater, mm -hmm. whatever, calculating the atomic mass of the Earth, or what, right. whatever we do, whatever you guys do with math, I don't really, I don't really <laughs> know what it's for, but I assume it use it for things like that. Um, but but what's really fascinating is that whenever you look at Egypt, which is older than ancient Greece, right. and and potentially many 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 times older than ancient Greece, mm -hmm. you find um, not only a lot of Pythagorean uh, math, but you find even more advanced math than than what made its way to ancient Greece. Without and, a doubt. And made its way down to us. Yeah, without a doubt. So uh, if I could kind of paint the picture for you in your minds of, of kind of coming out of the crawl space, which is about three feet high and, you know, about three feet wide, and then you come into the king's chamber, it's a very austere room. Now, the room is is measured as, as 20 cubits by 10 cubits, right? So the length of the room is is, is 20 cubits. And a cubit is 1.718 feet. Now, that happens to be a very important number. Why 1.718 feet? Now, a lot of people think, okay, a cubit is the length from your elbow to the end of your hand. Right. Right. And, um, and, and we think about a foot as being the length of the average man's foot. And that these are sort of imprecise measurements because everyone's got different arm lengths and everyone's got different feet lengths, sure. right? Well. What we have found, and, and really this is based upon not only my work, but also in the work of uh, Alan Green, who's one of my colleagues, is that all the fundamental measurements that we use, including the foot, the inch, the meter, the cubit, are all fundamentally connected to each other. And that the Great Pyramid takes into account all of those measurement systems. Now, the imperial system is based on what's called a base 12 mathematical system. 
right? So that's why we have 12 inches in a foot, sure, right? And and the the decimal system is based on a base 10 right. system, and and yet the pyramid that really to, pisses off my eight year old, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. He I'm hates sure. It. The pyramid seems to integrate both beautifully on top of each other. So you've got this king's chamber room that's that's 20 cubits long, 10 cubits wide, right? And um, and I the the height from the, of the the ceiling is like nineteen, just over nineteen feet, and and so you start wondering, well, what's the significance of this one point seven one eight feet, and why is that so important? Well, if you know mathematics, first of all, you would know that one point seven one eight has another meaning as a mathematical constant. Sounds like it's about half pi. Uh, right? Half pi would be one point five seven. Oh yeah. Okay. And that's also a very important ratio. Certainly, the pyramid is built on these ratios of 11 over 7, right? And that's kind of like the base width versus the height. And these things, these are all built in. It's 280 cubits high, which would be about 481 feet high. It's got a base width of 756 feet, okay? And, and so when you start looking at the perimeter also, is 3,020 feet, just over 3,020 feet, which is roughly equivalent to pi to the seventh power. And so when you start to think about going into this king's chamber and why it has this very unique resonance and everything, what I was doing when I was there the last time was Alan had asked me to measure using laser measuring tools, so I brought them with me, the volume of the king's chamber that we knew was relational to the qubit, the 1.718 feet, and to compare it against the volume of the sarcophagus, which is the one piece of furniture inside the king's chamber. There's no other furniture inside there. Or right? anywhere in the pyramid, right? Or anywhere in the pyramid. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a extremely big austere. granite box. It's a big granite box. And, and, and so um, it was fascinating because I, I did do that, and I measured it and found that, that if you turned the sarcophagus on its side, it will fit exactly six times up to the ceiling, right, from the floor to the ceiling, and it will fit exactly five times from one wall on the left side to the wall on the right side, right? So, and it will fit exactly 137 and a half times in the king's chamber. Now, that happens to be a very important mathematical relationship, which that 137.5. is- 137.5. 137.5. 137.5 is what's referred to as the golden angle. So the way you can derive the golden angle is you take 360 degrees for one turn of a circle, you multiply it by the golden number, which is 0.618, right? And uh, that's the also the ratio we use generally, 0.61 for a mile versus a kilometer. Okay. Right? So a kilometer is 0.61 of a mile, right? And a mile would be 1.61 of a kilometer. Right? Hey, JC, if you'll take notes on this, you and I might be able to pass a math test whenever we're done it, it's possible yeah. it's possible you guys are from texas right <laughs> <laughs> god damn it hey that was a compliment yeah yeah we are <laughs> we, we we are from texas Absolutely. I, doubt, I doubt this is going to help us pass a math test though so so anyway the 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 point is that it was exactly 137 and a half times and that's remarkable because here's the golden angle as i said you know 0.618 the golden number times 360 degrees gives you 222 and a half degrees. So 360 minus 222 and a half gives you 137 and a half. 
So you can think of the entire world is based on phi. The number of branches on the tree outside my building is relational to Fibonacci or phi relationships. The number of petals on a rose, it's all based on Fibonacci. So you could really think of light's reflection as phi. Okay. Matter's reflection as phi. And its absorption is another math constant that is the golden angle which is very close to another math constant called the fine structure constant, or alpha. Alpha. So uh, I was there doing those measurements and, um, and found these interesting correlations. Well, interestingly, the length of the King's Chamber room, as I said, is 20 cubits, and that comes out to be roughly you know, 34, 35 feet. And if you take out the doorway, right, which is that small crawl space doorway, you have roughly 31 and a half feet or roughly pi times 10, right? And oh, wow. so I, I was you know, looking at this and also wondering why is 1.718 so fundamentally important? Well, what you find is that if you have a, a, a circle with a radius of one meter, okay, 30 degrees of arc, which would be one twelfth of the circle, Okay, would mean that the length of that arc with a one meter radius, the arc of the one meter radius of 30 degrees or one twelfth of the circle, which we know is fundamental to time and so many other things, right? Mm -hmm. One twelfth, 12 months in a year, right? The base 12 system again coming out musical notes. There are 12 musical hours. notes in an octave, right? 12 hours, daytime, 12 hours, nighttime. The arc of a uh, circle with one meter radius is 1.718 feet. 1.718 feet, or gotcha. the same as the cubit, hmm. the sacred Egyptian cubit. Now, also, if I, if I swing a plumb bob, right, which is like a pendulum, yep. with one meter string at the center, and I pull that a 30-degree arc, right, across that. So think about this like a section of pi, right? Like you've got a, a yep. piece of pie and I'm going to take 30 degrees of a piece of pie, or so one twelfth of a pie, yep. right? The amount of time it takes for the plumb bob to swing back and forth, right? Each direction is exactly one second. Really? One second. Exactly. So there's a relationship between the meter, which is the radius, the arc, which is the sacred cubit, and time, which is one second swinging back and forth. You know, most of us dummies just kind of walk around thinking this stuff just got pulled out of thin air a few thousand years ago. I don't think so. I don't think that's really how it worked. Yeah. It seems like what you're what you're explaining is that this stuff actually has a root in, in natural law. Without a doubt. It's all and, tied together. And actually, it's even related to something else, a mathematical, another mathematical constant or another mathematical language verb, which is called the Euler number. I heard you guys talking about that on the webinar. Yeah, the Euler what number. So the Euler number is an Euler in German means owl, interestingly, right? Yeah, that is now, interesting. Now, an owl can be understood to have this unique ability to turn its head. It can't turn it all the way around, but can turn it just over 270 degrees. Now, you don't need to do that in front of us here. I know <laughs> you might have that ability, but... Um, Sounds like a good time. Yeah, sounds like a good time. That'd be pretty cool. I was double jointed when I was a kid. Exorcist, right? Yeah. Exactly. Now I can break my ankle stepping off a So curb. what's interesting about the Euler number is that it can also be used for calculating compound interest. So if, if I loan you $100 and I 
I'm asking you to pay me 6% interest. I can use something called the law of 72 to tell me how long it's going to take for me to double my money on 6% interest. And all I have to do is take six and divide it into 72. And that's going to take 12 years for me to double my money. If you're paying me 6% compounded interest, compounded, right? Just like banks do. Yep. Over that 12 year period, I'll double my money. Now, if you're paying me, you know, 10% interest, it's going to take me 7.2 years to double my money. And if you're paying me, you know, 20% interest, it's going to take me how long? I don't know. I'm glazing over at this point. About three and a half years. So, that sounds about so right. the point is this, that 7.2 is the same as the Euler numbers 7.18. Gotcha. So that 1.718. So it is a fundamental math constant. The interest portion, the maximum interest I could get using the Euler number on any compounding would be in addition to your one, which is your principal, $100 that basically I loaned you. Yep. The maximum amount I'm going to get back, even if I compound the interest hourly, will be limited by the Euler number to 1.718 times that Jesus. principle. That's incredible. So the sacred cubit is exactly 1.718, which we already know ties together time, the second, the arc of a circle with radius one meter, right? And now it's also telling us what the rate limiter on wave propagation or on compounding of interest or growth must be. So you can now extrapolate that all the way to the point and say, wait a minute, if light speed is the universal sort of constant rate limiter limitation. or constant or speed limit of the universe, yeah. right? Then the speed limit of the speed limit itself must be the Euler number. And in fact, it is. The Euler number is the speed limit of light speed. It will control the speed of light. Jesus. So here all of this is built into the sacred Egyptian cubit that if you believe it's from dynastic Egypt, this should have been around the same time period that the wheel was invented. Right. Yeah. It doesn't work out. I don't think so. It doesn't work out. People were just figuring out the wheel and they were figuring out this really complex shit about the speed of light. Yeah, well, you know in fact, I mean? even the Great Pyramid, look, the- The coordinates. The coordinates. Yeah. The latitude of the Great Pyramid is 29.9792458, right? And Degrees, so and that, that gives us you know, the, the latitude, and the longitude is 31.1342 degrees. So what does that tell us? Well, interestingly, both those numbers are light speed measurements. 29.9792458 is exactly the speed of light in meters per second, down to one meter accuracy. Jesus Christ. Okay. 31.1342 degrees divided into 360 degrees, or 36 degrees, or just fractally at two, taking a fractal against one circle around that gives us a ratio of 0.864, which is the same 0.864 that defines why we have 86,400 seconds in one day, which is the same 864 that defines the exact diameter of the sun in hundreds of thousands of miles, 864,000 miles, Golly. which is the same 864 that is the diameter of Jupiter. 86,400 miles. That is the diameter of Jupiter. I just saw that the other day. Where did I see that? Don't know. Inside the universal one, I think. So, yes, and light speed yeah. is 
the same 86400, just put a one on the front. 1.864 times 10 to the fifth power in miles per second. 186,400 miles per second. Oh, that's crazy. So how could all of this just be a coincidence? I've always wondered that. By the I... way, it's a note. It's also a note. 864. What is it? What note is it? Well, like 864 hertz would be an A. That's an A. And 432 would be its next lower octave, A. So 432 would be the fifth octave of A on a piano. So if you think about 432 is also unique that 432 squared is the speed of light. Is in it miles really? Per second. Yes, Shut it up. Is. It's the only number that You're squares. You're making that up. I'm not. Do it on your calculator. 432 times 432 equals 186,624. And that number is the closest number that squares to light speed. So how could the pyramid builders have understood this much detail and this <sighs> much about numbers? They certainly didn't have Google. And you almost have to ask the question, did they somehow know where we arbitrarily, as if things are arbitrary, but where we, over the last several hundred years, remember the longitude system wasn't even created. I mean, it was difficult all the way through the 16th century for people to come up with accurate measurements for longitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Latitude was around a little bit earlier, but I mean, let's be real. How could they have known that both the longitude and latitude are light speed measurements, measurements? using two different units? That's unbelievable. I'd actually, I didn't, I, I'd heard about the coordinates thing indicating that, but I didn't realize that those that they did it in two different units. Yeah, one, one is one, one is in miles per second. Yeah, the one, other one is in it's a ratio against three hundred sixty degrees, and the other one is in meters per second, accurate to one meter. That's fucking bananas. That's crazy. And then you know, not to mention like the size of the pyramid itself, um, like is is like the the polar radius of the Earth, uh, like the northern hemisphere or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's relational it again to four thirty two. It's sort of the the scaling of the Earth, and I, uh, there's so many different ways to analyze right. this and how it always comes back to 432, 864, 216, which is just half of 432. Uh, these phi relationships. All you have to do is take. We have discovered my myself and my friend and colleague Alan Green have now verified over 80 math and physical constants that can all be derived to at least two to three, sometimes six, seven digits accuracy in the structure of the pyramid simply by taking the proportional dimensions and finding the ratios. Where did this knowledge come from? Like, what were they doing? You know, the the sort of, the mainstream sort of historical view of this, of, of you know, the, uh, the origination of human civilization is that these guys kind of popped up out of the dirt. They went from, you know, uh, dragging their women around by the hair and banging them on the head with the club. And then one day they built the pyramids. No, that's Alabama. Oh, that's still happening. Is that yeah. still a thing? <laughs> they just legislated <laughs> it, I think. But that's <laughs> they still make, it's still totally a thing in Alabama. Um, but, you know, 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago was kind of like the, the birth of agriculture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty recent, I guess, mm -hmm. in geological time. And then kind of the main the, the mainstream story is, is that one day we woke up in our cave and decided to go build one of the most mathematically pristine, just insane uh, architectural, you know, constructions of all time. And it, it doesn't add up for me. 
oh, look, well, let's go a step further. First of all, let's just look at it from this perspective. You know, we we know that there's some pretty tall buildings on Earth, right? Empire State sure. Building, not so tall anymore, yeah. right? We had the Twin Towers that were much taller. Burj we got Khalifa's, the building now. Burj Khalifa. Absolutely, these massive, massive buildings. Recognize that the Great Pyramid would have been the tallest building on the planet for almost 4,500 years, if you believe the dynastic Egyptian Right, if it time was built period, in 2,500 like Khufu BC. really built it. But still, even still, the fact that it was the tallest building on the planet for 4,500 years almost, yeah, that's remarkable. Sure. That is remarkable, and it still stands today. And it is so accurate that it has only moved and shifted with all the earthquakes that have happened, all the natural calamities that have come and gone during either the 4,500 years that we're referencing or maybe you know, from the Yunga Dryas all the way until today. Yep. You know, some believe that the pyramid's more like 13,000 years old, and that's what I probably subscribe to as well. But when you think that the thing is only deviated from its perfect positioning by less than a quarter of an inch. On a 27-acre footprint? With, it's 13 acre, 13 oh, thir- acre 13 total acres. footprint. And there's two, and almost two and a half million stones, right? That's incredibly remarkable. Yeah. I would challenge anybody to try and rebuild the pyramid today. Zahi Hawass would tell you that it can be done. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so show us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched those Egyptian documentaries and like they show how they, how they would have made stones back then. And it's like, I got a fucking rock. You're just banging it against a rock. And you're like, you know how long it takes to do that? Two and a half million stones. Yeah. And then to lift them 485 feet high and place them with exact. Pre- yeah. Anyway, just, you, yeah know. That, that you ever watch Egyptian documentaries? I do. Do you just fucking yell at the TV the whole time? No, because sometimes the later ones are getting really good. You know, I, the ones that are still uh, sort of like of the belief system that it was dynastic Egypt and not recognizing the pure coincidences that we have uh, definitely found. The fact that 80 math constants are embedded. <laughs> you know, our understanding in the world of math constants until recently has been that there's only about, you know, less than 100 total math and physical constants. And 80 of them are present. present 80 of them, ring. yeah, including the Planck length, including Brun's constant, which was only discovered in 1919. So how is this possible? Yeah. It makes me actually question if our understanding of time is correct. Yeah. Now that's a whole different discussion, but I'm with you on that. What about the astronomy? I know your 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 colleague of yours, uh mm-hmm. Nassim Harriman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know Nassim. Yes, very um, well. And you, you guys he's done some work on the Great Pyramid. He's oh yeah. Looked yeah. At, In at, fact at, my my first trip uh to Egypt was was with him. And he had asked me to present. That was the first time I ever presented any of my work uh, mathematically to larger groups. And I presented in in Egypt in late 2017. And it just so happened that the day that we were there and we all spent the night in the pyramid, it was pretty epic. There's like 200 of us, lots of mathematicians, physicists, and other folks along the on the along the way with us that were there. Like the ultimate nerd fantasy. It was it was phenomenal. I have to admit, it was pretty epic. And um, that same day we, we were there, we saw this muonic uh, sort of like heavy capital equipment that was being used by a Japanese delegation. Uh, and they had just discovered that same day a new chamber that is above the 
the Grand Gallery and above the King's Chamber. Uh, and they announced it only a few days later, but we we had heard about it. Is then. that the one that was like the size of a seven forty seven or something like that? Um, it's it's long. It's definitely long. It's about the same size as the as the Grand Gallery. That, that irritated the shit out of me when that happened because as soon as I saw it, I told everybody. I said, "Watch Zahi and Mark Laner are going to come out and say this is nothing. It's nothing." And sure enough, within like hours, Zahi Hawass and Mark Laner were were writing articles going, "This this is not a big deal." nothing to get excited about like what kind of an attitude is that you know i <laughs> you're in charge of the whole I, fucking thing i can't get excited I, I can't get inside uh you know the minds of others but you would find that exciting though that excited oh, you without a doubt but look it's the same thing that happened identically to robert shock yeah. in 1991 he did the ground penetrating radar analysis under the sphinx found that there's a whole network of chambers and uh, just as edgar casey had predicted Right. And Edgar Casey known as the sleeping prophet, the sleeping prophet. And he said that there was uh, the Atlantean Hall of Records was a hall of records the underneath the left paw and, and all of that. And, and so Robert Schock has been wanting to get under there since 1991. And you think he many people have said there's nothing underneath there, even though the ground penetrating radar very clearly indicates and demonstrates that there there is. Yeah. So and I and I do I, I'm optimistic that that. We, because of where we are in, you know, sort of our own time frame right now and what's happening and the changes going on in the world, um, I'm quite optimistic that we will see underneath the Sphinx. And I, I'm quite optimistic that we'll understand uh, a lot more about the Giza Plateau uh, than what we have historically understood and known. That's awesome. I hope so. I really do. I spent some time with Andrew Collins. You ever heard of Andrew Collins? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, spent some time with him uh, last fall at the Earthkeeper Conference and uh, kind of just harassed him all day long mm-hmm. the way that I, I, I do people when I get really interested in what they're doing. And, uh, you know, he had just, he discovered some, I mean, well, I guess sort of co-rediscovered some tunnels under the plateau mm-hmm. out there and put that in his book, uh, one, of, one of his recent books. I can't remember which one. But anyway, yeah. You're the only scary place that was in the pyramid? Mm. I'll tell you. The place underneath with all oh, the yeah. shit dug out? Yeah, so there's the well, right? The well is is far underneath the pyramid and um, there is a shaft that ends in a wall and that shaft is about 80 feet or so long and um, it's a very small crawl space it's probably maybe three feet by three feet it's 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 actually smaller than it seems smaller maybe it's too I have never measured it so no, thank you it's definitely smaller than the crawl space space to get into the uh, to get in the king's chamber, so probably two and a half feet or something. It's 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 very small, and it's quite jagged rock, which was originally limestone that is now crystallized. So, it's uh, it's got like crystal dust, quartz crystal, all over the floor of it, and there's sort of like this whole thing about uh, going to the end of that uh, that shaft and sort of overcoming your fear type of thing because it's pretty scary in there. I'll have to admit, and I've never seen something so dark in my life. Like, really. Oh, that that I stayed in there for three hours and because I, I wanted to just really experience it and see, you know, what I could experience. And and the first time I went in with a couple of other colleagues and um, and the second time I went in with a couple of other colleagues. But the last time I went in, I went in all by my lonesome right when I had the pyramid to myself and it was say Bloody uh, Mary like three times. Well, you know, you you, kind of just, uh, you have to like not be afraid of anything and and just kind of go in. It's not quite like Free Solo, the movie Free Solo. If you haven't seen that, 
Free it's solo. Epic, yeah. Free solo. The guy that uh, that climbs uh, El Capitan, right? And, oh, I <laughs> saw that. I saw the uh, the preview for that. It's that epic. looks fucking bananas. Yeah, that guy. That's a different kind of scary. Yeah, you know, yeah. Obviously, I'm not so good at that kind of scary, but uh, but you know, going into that shaft had some scary elements to it. I, I have to admit, but the rest of it was not. And I and I believe that that we will in the not too distant future understand a lot more about the the network that I believe is clearly under the Giza Plateau. There is the shaft of Osiris, which goes down the causeway towards the Sphinx. And that uh, has been widely publicized. You can even watch a video with Zaya Wass on that uh, and Mark Lerner. And uh, the shaft of Osiris has a whole chamber. There's water in that chamber. It's an interesting place about uh, midway down the causeway really? towards the Sphinx. I heard there was a lake under, under the, uh, the pyramid. There is. There's. There's definitely aquifers. Yeah. Um, and and it's been flooded underneath there uh, several times. It's limestone under there, right? Yeah. Limestone. Doesn't doesn't water when it runs through limestone? Doesn't it create some kind of a mild electric charge? I've heard that that might be a thing underneath the pyramid. That, that water, there could be. That it could have been some sort of electrical energy. Chris producing. Dunn talked about that. Mm-hmm. You familiar mm-hmm. with Chris Dunn's work? I am. Yeah. I th- I've always thought he was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I thought the way that he approaches. Uh, looking at like uh, machine marks on the stone and stuff like that. Absolutely. He had a really a, a nice sort of um, empirical way of looking at things. Right. You know, there's not, not a whole lot. It doesn't take a whole lot to look at some saw blade marks and go, those are fucking saw blade marks. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's not a whole lot of interpretation to that. But again, it's like we talked about with the Egyptologist. If you don't, if you're not a numerologist or a mathematician, you get a group of mathematicians talking about all the, the, these numbers inside the king's chamber, you just glaze over. You don't know, right? Right. And it's the same thing if you're not a machine, you know, a machinist or something mm-hmm. like Chris Dunn mm-hmm. and you're, you're Zahi Hawass or whoever, and he starts saying, look, you know, this is so many RPMs. This is a blade moving at this speed and this fast. And you just glaze over, you know, and they're like, I don't really know. But to, 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 any, to anybody who understands tools at all, you're like, well, it's obviously what that is. But see, that's a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, which is unless you are broad enough that's it, in yeah. your perspective that you know like the 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 language of tools yeah and that these groove markings represent a particular type of material going up against this you know hard material going up against the softer material and at what at sort of what you know rpm that's basically occurring at um those are the types of things that archaeology is not really taught they're not equipped for that yeah it's they're not equipped and they're also not equipped mathematically so of course you know, if they're basing all their assumptions on uh, a training and discipline that is tied to their university training, which might have, you know, hieroglyphics and might have an understanding of language in it, but not mathematical language. Yep. Then how could they see those correlations? Right. It would be a whole nother dimension. Of them. Well, it would be sort know, of like trying to explain a third dimension to a flatlander. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and also, you know, if, if they're... If you're talking about at the university, you, you can you can study hieroglyphics, you can understand the language of the first dynasty and the tenth dynasty and whatever. But if if the pyramid was built long before the first dynasty, um, which seems like likely, you know, or at least possible, the language of math is really the language that it was created in. So all all of all of your study of hieroglyphics and stuff is kind of moot. Absolutely. At that point. Absolutely. Um, how does when you look at these ancient cultures and the way that the way that they they operated, the way that they thought, what do you think about uh, 
where that information may have come from. Where, where, did, where did this sort of, all the math, all the advanced shit that they did, right? Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on Atlantis or any kind of cataclysms or any of that? I, mean, I know it sounds kind of, it's kind of far out for, for a mathematician, um, but is that anything you've ever looked at or have any understanding of? I think of? all of us in some way, shape, or form have either had a romanticized view or some sort of intuitive gut feeling that the history that we have been taught is not necessarily the truth. Yeah. Now, there's only one constant that I could look at in all my scientific study is that at eventually, at all points in history, all science is proven wrong. Now, I know that sounds funny for me to say that, but it actually is kind of true. I mean, we, we took it as gospel that, you know, the earth was the center of the universe, right? Until we came up with heliocentric models, right, which were with Copernicus and Galileo, right? Now I could say that, well, actually, we might actually be at the center of our own universe because we're not stationary as a solar system. We're traveling at about 500,000 miles an hour right now around the galaxy in a 259 million year cycle, which we happen to be exactly 25,920 light years from the center of the galaxy. Really? Yeah. Which is, uh, Which is the precession of equinox. Precession of equinox. Yeah, it's right. a great year. The great year. So h- how is that? See, I know some shit, Robert Grant. Yeah, you got that. I know what you got that, that. shit and, is. And see, I've been saving that one this whole fucking podcast. Like, so well, we'll wait go. to drop that 25,920. I'll, I'll drop this one on you. So <laughs> why 25,920? That happens to be the average number of breaths of a human being in a day. Is it really? Yes, it is. We have 86,000. 400 seconds in a day, 25,000. 3.333 and a third breaths, right? Or three and a third seconds, right, for each breath. So you divide 86,400 by 3.33333, and it gives you 25,920. Explain for everybody what a great year is. The great year is uh, the Earth's wobble. So the, wor- or the Earth has a processional axis, right? And it also travels through the zodiac in a great cycle. And that great cycle uh, is referred to as the, the great year. Do you know anything about astrology? Yes. We'll get into that next. Go. Okay. So uh, it also happens to be that, that that same 2592 is 1.61 squared. Okay. So 1.61, which is related to the golden numbers, like the mile to the meter that I talked about. Gotcha. Right? 1.61 squared is 2.592. That's the same 25,920. Jesus. Right? It's just 2.592 instead of 25,920. So it, it's all related back to the same phi golden mean golden number ratios, right? And and this this Earth's wobble takes twenty five thousand nine hundred and twenty years to complete its precession. So that is now some people would say that, and and I probably am a believer in this that it also references our uh, binary star, which many believe scientifically as well to be Sirius A, which is a 
brightest star we have in the sky. It's a part, we refer it's a to it as to our own sun. We refer right? to it as Canis Major, right? So if you look up in the night sky and you see Orion, which is one of the most prominent constellations in the sky, many refer to that as Egyptians looked at that as Osiris, right? Yeah. And many believe, including Robert Bavall, that um, and Graham Hancock and many others that that the Great Pyramid orientation of the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau are oriented according to the belt of Orion as it would have looked in the night sky 13,000 years ago. So half of the procession from where we are today. The other side of the clock, right? The other side of the clock, precisely. So many believe, though, that, that, that there's a... That time tends to speed up, just like as you have a binary star system. As you get closer, right, you kind of slingshot around that binary star. For anybody who's seen Interstellar, right, this will make a lot of sense. Exactly. So you slingshot, or Apollo thirteen, or whatever, yep. right. So they have this sort of slingshot, Occam's razor kind of a thing, right, where you slingshot around very fast. And because of that, uh, half of the procession would be regulated at a 25,920-year cycle, whereas the other half of the procession would be regulated at 21,600, the average of which is exactly 24,000. Really? Yes. So in the... And we got 24 hours in a day. In the Kali Yugas, and the Yugas is measured by the Vedic mathematicians, they believe that the cycles are 24,000 years. So Walter Kretinen, who is another colleague of mine, uh, wrote a book on this exact phenomenon called The Lost Star. And, uh, and he's referring to Sirius A, Sirius A being a, a potential binary pair of our sun, our Helios. And you know, we are currently 8.6 light years away from Sirius A. So That's it, really? Yeah, we're getting closer and closer. Uh, we'll get closer and closer for the next several thousand years. And, and then we'll go through the cycle again. And you know, when you, when you consider this processional cycle is that long and it relates to the number of breaths in in a day right that we have sure and when you think about kind of even our night and day cycles could be inhalations exhalations for the earth itself right and you start thinking about 25,920 and you square that number you get 671 million which is the speed of light in miles per hour it's not a coincidence that the Earth is traveling around the sun right now at a speed of 18.6 miles per second. That same 186,000 miles per second is light speed. So we're traveling around the sun at exactly 10,000 times slower than the light speed itself. At exactly 10,000 Yes. Times and slower. in addition to that, we are 93 million miles away from the sun. Yep. You look that up in any textbook. Double that to find, let's call that the radius you get of the our distance from the sun. 186. 186 million would be the diameter of our orbital. So incredible. these are all fractals of light speed. And there's a, a beautiful symmetry and a beautiful patterning that, that occupies and fulfills our entire universal experience. And yet we still hear from science all the time that it's all random. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the biggest uh, the biggest things about the modern scientific community that I have a problem with from a, like the cosmology community and the astrophysics community. So I don't know if you're familiar with like Lawrence Krauss. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a I think he's an astrophysicist and a cosmologist from Arizona State University. And 
very smart dude. He wrote a book called uh, Universe from Nothing, I think is what he wrote. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Lawrence Krauss for a long time, but he started wearing me out with with what what to me is, it used to be a thinly veiled agenda, and now it's just not even, it's just a transparent agenda to just, to, to, uh, to propagate this whole idea that it's all random. It has to be random. This whole universe well, has to be random. And, you know, you see things like, the uh, the CME map, you know, the co- or the cosmic microwave background CMB map or whatever it's called, where they've they've taken pictures of the the uh, the background radiation left from the Big Bang. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, have you seen? I've seen it. Yeah. You've seen mm-hmm. this, so you know you already know where I'm going with this. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what is what does it what does it point to? There's a picture of the radiation left over from the Big Bang, and they have what do they call it? I think they call it the ring, the ring of death or something like that, and it shows. This ring of radiation almost looks like a yin and yang in this sort of three-dimensional map of, of, the, of the known universe. And the reason that, that cosmologists uh, in the mainstream science community call it the ring of death is because it is the, what, the, what it's evidence of is the death of the modern uh, view of cosmology because it points to the Earth being the center of the known universe, which is tremendous. Well, I mean, let's take this one step further. Let's do that. How old is the universe? 4.6 billion years. No, that's Earth. Oh, 13.7 billion. Right, so why 13.7? 137. Oh. Wait a minute. What did I talk about when I talked about the Great Pyramids, King Chamber, and the sarcophagus ratio versus... 137. 137. In fact, it was 137 and a half. So why is that? Okay, and what, what I can tell you is a simple calculation. Very easy. You can Google this and look it up. I just did it when I was at Northwestern teaching a, a course. I teach entrepreneurship and leadership at Northwestern every year in January. And while I was wa- waiting in the classroom for my lecture to come up and listening to one of the other lecturers who was doing a great job, but I'd seen his lecture several times. So I was sort of like working on my notebook and I, I decided to look up the believed or the understanding that we have of what is the total uh, matter of the universe as a percentage of the overall universe of universe and what is the total volume right of the vacuum so the 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 volume of all mass and matter right the volume of all matter versus the volume of all vacuum and what you'll find is is you'll find this number with the vacuum which is you know 99.999999 with 29s right 29s and then you'll get this number of five eight at the end. Hmm. So you get nine, so point nine 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 with twenty nines, and then five eight at the end. And then when you look at the matter of the universe, it's estimated to be twenty zeros and point four two at the end. Okay, so of course those two things would add up together to create sort of the volume of the universe, right? Yep. Well, if you take that five eight that's at the end because the other nines don't matter. That's all just sort of like back to back sure. to unity, right? And the zeros don't matter because it's all just back to unity. You take the five eight and you divide it by, by the four two. Well, that relationship, right, a vacuum to matter comes out to one point three eight. One point three eight. Now the age of the universe is widely recognized today. There's been some new stuff recently that's come out, and I don't know, I can't verify it, but the age of the universe is recognized to be just over 13.8 billion years old. Now, if you 
subscribe at all to this notion of inflation or inhalation exhalation cycles that probably is a good argument right for the big bang right and there's a giant exhalation inhalation excuse me and it continues to inflate 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 and space continues to expand 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 it's expanding at near light speed right then what you have to recognize is that through that cycle, just like an atom, a hydrogen atom coming out, you think of this as just a big macro cycle of what we would consider something like the precession, which, you know, you could drill that all the way down to a hydrogen atom's time, right, for like As half-life. above, so below. As above, so below. Then you would have to take and measure what is the vacuum volume of an atom versus where it is in its periodicity or its cyclical evolution. That's a Walter Russell word. Right in its evolution of what is its volume of matter versus its volume of vacuum, that's gonna give you its age. Now, interestingly, I start to then question, well, is it always just gonna be, no matter where you are in time, 13.8 billion years? Right. Is there a reason that Sirius A is 8.6 light years from Earth? That's the same 8.6 that relates to 8.64 right, which is the diameter of the sun times 10 to the fifth power. So you start to kind of see all these patterns converge that even time itself, and maybe the way we refer to space as space-time should just be time, and that we know that time is governed in large part by mass and gravity. Yeah. And we need to maybe start thinking differently about the universe's cycles and its role with consciousness and, and how... Everything is connected. One of the great quotes by Leonardo da Vinci, I was just in Rome. I gave a presentation at the Vatican. And one of the, on prime numbers and encryptions and all this kind of stuff. And I was there, and I just had my 50th birthday. Right. This happy last bur- happy birthday, you. by the way. Thank you very we much. We missed that by like a week. <laughs> and uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, is being celebrated all over Rome right now because it's been 500 years since his death. Right. So he died in, in 1519. And so I, I was certainly on a trek while I was there. I had some free time with some of my colleagues, and we were on sort of a Da Vinci Code trek, and it was pretty fascinating. We found some pretty epic stuff, but um, which I will not share on this. I think that'd be pretty badass to take a Da Vinci Code <laughs> trip with Robert Grant around fucking Rome. <laughs> it was, it I was put pretty, that one on my bucket list. It was pretty fun. But, um, you know, one of the things that Da Vinci says is, to achieve a complete mind, study the art of science and study the science of art. Know that everything is connected. Yes. And that is so true. And what I, what I really lament and, and regret, I guess, if, there, if I can regret, I'm not sure I'm allowed to regret, but the thing that I, I don't feel, and I've, you know, I've had a good education, right? I'm not... I didn't go into other fields like uh, physics and mathematics. I ended up going into business because it was the field that allowed me to be as generalist as I wanted to be. I, I you know, I went and went to MBA school and I did, uh, you know, sort of my training was more on the finance and number side. I liked mathematics. And so that's why I went that direction. But I was always fascinated by healthcare, always fascinated by uh, creativity and entrepreneurship. And so... You know, I have many patents in electromagnetism and physics and all these different varying areas because I've been able to apply these different languages of thought into disparate areas. And what is sad to me 
about our economic, uh, not only economic system, which is really driven by scarcity, but our educational system, which is likewise driven by scarcity. Because what's happened today is that we have trained automatons who can easily be replaced by AI because of their hyper-specialization. And we are no longer celebrating what it means to be human, right? Or potentially even divinely human because we've lost the language that connects all the dots. And, and that can only be achieved when you are balanced in your thought across math, its mirrored opposite music, right? Art and its mirrored opposite science, which is really left brain and right brain in combination to then bring forward the philosophical aspect in the prefrontal cortex. And one of the great uh, frescoes that we see in the Sistine Chapel, also in Rome, by Michelangelo, is that wonderful picture that we all know of Adam reaching out to touch the finger of God. And God is a mirror reflection of Adam. But actually, most people just think that there's a curtain around God with a bunch of cherubs, angels around him in that picture. It's the brain. It's a brain, right? And God's head is right in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. The very shape of his leg is a mirror reflection of Adam's leg. How he's pointing out, they're both pointing out. So what is Michelangelo trying to tell us? Right? That there's, that there's a higher consciousness somehow. And, and I think that because our educational system is so oriented around trying to maximize dollar return, and we've seen that with all the scandals of late, right? Yeah. Newport Beach was pretty wiped out by a lot of people that, you know, heaven forbid they were buying educations for their kids. Yeah. Uh, but let's be real, it happened and yeah. it happens. And, and so I was kind of surprised there needs to be a whole in. overhaul on our educational system. It, there needs to be a total overhaul. We, we talked a little bit at, at dinner about how awesome the internet can be uh, when you're talking about disseminating information. Mm -hmm. So tape being able to learn physics from, you know, Feynman or. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. wanted to learn physics when I started getting interested in this stuff. I didn't want to have to go back to school just because I chose my profession when I was, you know, in my 20s. Yeah. I didn't want to have to go back to school again to learn, you know, physics to the degree I wanted to learn. And the beautiful thing about the Internet today and YouTube is that my professor was Richard Feynman. Yep. My professors are Wheeler. My professors are Leonard Susskind. My professors, and I'm so fascinated by this stuff, I don't need to be tested with any of it because I learned it. You're going to strive as hard as you can to learn it as right. best you can. Right. I was yeah. learning it because I was interested, not because I was force-fed it. Yeah. And, and that autodidaction is an important part of what I would refer to this as the alchemical path. And the alchemical path is really about merging of opposites. It's left brain, right brain in equal proportion. It's masculine and feminine in equal proportion. And it is our right, our birthright as human beings, I believe, to tap into higher understanding and higher knowledge. The birds don't need to be taught by anyone to fly south in the winter. We don't have a, a caterpillar training school to train them on what it means to become a butterfly. Yep. Right, they realize that they have to go in the cocoon in a natural sense. The, maybe at a cellular level they know, but maybe at a conscious level they don't have a clue. And and yet they all know turtles that never go back ever in their lives, except for the moment that they're hatched out of their eggs on some shore, somehow find their way back to that exact same shore. You know, we have whales that do the same thing in their migration patterns. They somehow know where to go. 
Human beings have in our birthright our own ability to somehow know and to tap into higher knowledge, but only if you avoid the hyper-specialization path. And that is what exactly has been taught by the alchemists, which were Isaac Newton, which were Rene Descartes, which were Johannes Kepler. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought up these guys, the, al- the alchemists of, of that era. Mm-hmm. We talked recently um, on the podcast about John D. Yeah. And he was brought up in our, our webinar earlier with, uh, with all your mathematician colleagues. Yes. All these mm-hmm. wonderful minds. And, uh, you know, I, what, what, what I, I'm, always, I'm always bitching about the way that science handles things, right? It's like the one thing that I still find myself being negative about sometimes is like, God, man, why don't they see things differently in, in some ways? Um, Isaac Newton is known, uh, you know, Einstein said that he was the greatest scientist of all time. And he said that Tesla was the greatest physicist of all time, right? But um, we look at we look at Newton like a great scientist, but you know he only wrote so many books on physics, right? Like I don't know what was it, twelve books or ten books or something like that. But he wrote like a hundred and twenty something books on alchemy and astrology. Yeah, and we just throw that shit out. <laughs> just you know like, who bought all those books? No, Bill Gates. I, was, I swear to God, <laughs> I was going to say that. I thought I read that somewhere. So Cambridge University, you know, wanted every single. And this is no joke. Look it up. Every single person in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, 18th centuries included, that had massive discoveries were all alchemists. Right. And we throw that out. Like We toss it out. Like, it's completely irrelevant. Oh, that's their crazy side. That's the crazy right? side, right? That's what, the- base metal into gold? Really? You're going to turn lead into gold? So that's what people think. But they don't understand that that's just an analogy. Yeah, yeah of a process that goes on inside the mind. This is a psychological journey to understand self. Socrates said, know thyself. Two simple words that it seems so ridiculously rudimentary, but probably, not probably, most definitely the most difficult thing you'll ever do during your lifetime is learning to know yourself. That if there's, there's, if there's one thing you can do that have a profound impact on your life experience, it is learning to know yourself and accept yourself. Now, narcissism, sometimes referred to as self-love, I think that's a terrible way to describe narcissism. Yeah. Right? Because it, it isn't actually self-love. What it is is self-loathing. Narcissism is only allowing yourself to recognize the aspects of yourself that you want to show the world. That's narcissistic behavior, and you're fully denying the elements of your personality that you don't want others to see as if they don't exist. We are all equal on both sides of the equation. There is no person that is perfectly good, and there's no person that's perfectly bad, right? You, Everyone has elements of both sides in their personalities, and what becomes very dense and powerful in your life and can strike you with a vengeance in a midlife crisis scenario or cause you to do really bad things from a societal perspective is not integrating and not accepting the elements of yourself that you're ashamed of. It takes you back to the Garden of Eden. The very first moment, right, after Adam ate of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, is God comes in, this is in Genesis, and he says, Adam, where are you? And he says, oh, I'm hiding because I'm naked. I'm hiding because I'm naked, right? And the first thing that he says, Adam, what hath thou done? And he says, 
Oh, uh, the woman that thou gavest me and commanded that I should remain with, she gave me of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I did eat. That bitch. So the shame immediately translated into blame. Yeah. So what happens is, is this comes right out of Shakespeare too. You know, me thinketh the woman doth protesteth too much. If you spot it in someone, that means you got it. Yeah. Whatever. And I had someone send me a text message today that was pretty funny because she said, oh, I'm working with this, uh, this woman who says that she keeps experiencing working for like different bosses who all happen to be greedy and unethical. And she said, what should I tell her? And I said, you should tell her that it's because she's tempted by greed and unethical behavior and she's denying it in herself. So she's going to see this over and over and over again in her life experience until it finally is taught to her as being her. I've heard it said, and we, and we often kind of echo this in, in one form or another, that the things that, that trigger you about another person are reflections of issues that you have yourself. 100%. Until you learn to accept yourself and stop judging yourself, you will always judge others, especially when they emulate whatever it is you don't like about you. Yeah, and it's it's one of those spiraling things. I you know I talk about this a lot on the podcast, uh, but it's a spiral, right? So you can start the exercise of self-acceptance first and say, I'm going to accept myself, these flaws, embrace the shadow, deal with this. Uh, and then you'll find the next day when you wake up that maybe I judge Robert less. I judge externally less, right? But you can also just go today, I'm just not going to be so judgmental of Robert and JC and everybody else that I encounter. And then when you get home at night, you'll go, I'm not judging myself as much as I was. So it, 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 you can either you can start it internally and you can start it externally and get that that self-perpetuating spiral going of 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 openness and acceptance versus, you know, fear and judgment. So I, I, I have a TED talk. Um, and it's, it's called uh, Beautiful Minds. This because the name of the conference was Beautiful Minds. But Beautiful Minds are free from fear. And in it, I, I sort of give a simple prescription on how to overcome fear in your life. And I've been lucky because I've taken big risks in my career and life. And you know I have uh, several companies and started several companies. And I took one public last year. I'm taking another one public this year. And probably another one public next year. And... Because I've taken big risks, I've obviously had to overcome fear, just like going in that crawl space in the Great Pyramid meant that I had to overcome my fear. And the prescription I give is a simple one, which is anytime I start to feel afraid, I decide to replace that fear with gratitude for that moment. I love that. And it's a simple thing, and I've found that it's physically impossible for me to feel fear and gratitude at the same time. Once I start going into this place of, wow, I've just had a great life, even if I'm going to die right now, man, I've had the best life, I've got the best family, I've got the best friends, I've had the best life experiences, I've seen the world, and I start sort of counting my blessings of my life, and it totally flips the situation. Now, my next TED Talk that I give is going to be on replacing like beautiful lives, right? Not beautiful minds, but beautiful lives replace judgment with acceptance. Acceptance of yourself is going back to knowing yourself and accepting yourself. It's Socrates. It's a Socratic sort of uh, 
uh, Socratic admonition, right? It's an exhortation from Socrates is the most powerful thing you can do because that really does personify being the change you want to see in the world. And when you start to look at the world around you, even the moment and time, we all place conditions on our time and our experience in our day-to-day lives. Oh, man, life will be so much better when this thing is finished. Oh, gosh, you know, I'll be so much happier when I've achieved this. Or, oh, my gosh, if I can achieve this, you know, I'll be much better and I'll, I'll feel better about myself. By doing those things and thinking that way, you're placing conditions on self-acceptance. And, and when you start looking at, oh, my wife would be so much better if she would just do this. Well, it's, it's conditional love. It's conditional love. And by the way, conditional love is only a few steps away from betrayal. That's deep. So, and that's when you start, that's what the alchemical process is. The alchemical process is one of learning self-acceptance and thereby learning acceptance of your experience around you and then your world literally becomes like a heaven on earth because you're no longer stressed by any of it you're not thinking oh my gosh i have to achieve this i have to do this i have this whole list of things blah 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 to get done there's no stress about it it's like i'm just going to surrender i'll let the universe basically take me along this path because i know that it's going to steer me the right direction and i'm okay with it and i think that's something that so many people struggle with because They'll, they'll feel like, well, I'll be good enough if I achieve this or do that. And then I'll love myself. And then I'll love myself. Yeah. Right? If I can win an Olympic medal, I'll love myself. Well, and, and, and as within, so without, right? So, I mean, if you don't love yourself unconditionally, can you really love anyone else You can't. You cannot. That's the whole universe. That is the golden rule, right? And, and so as I sort of think about my own experience, you know, and— I used to care so much about what other people thought, so much. Now, I don't really care what other people think as so much as I care about not judging myself. And then, therefore, when I don't judge myself, it makes it very difficult for me to judge anybody else. And so every day tends to get sort of easier and better and lighter. I'm not thinking about, oh, my gosh, I got to do this, I got to do this, or making comparisons or thinking in terms of scarcity. Instead, it replaces life in beautiful ways with abundance and, and happiness. You know, happiness is, is kind of a choice when you decide to accept the world around you and, and start to perceive the world around you as the heaven that it actually can be. Everything that happens to you in the world could either be the best thing that ever happened or the worst. 90% of what happens to us in our day-to-day lives is what we perceive happened to us, not actually what happened to us. That's such a beautiful way to to look at life is through that sort of alchemical lens of of transmuting your own inner energies into into a balanced and harmonic and open and loving and acceptance state. It's it's uh, it's polarity, right? It is, it, and it's it's as Negative. Walter Russell would say, it's balanced rhythmic interchange. Yep, right, and that balanced rhythmic interchange and polarity is one of the beautiful things of life because it creates differentiation. We can look at people and say, wow, I love that person for their difference. You know, I'll be honest with you. I used to like look at Donald Trump even as recently as a couple years ago. And while I think he's a very, very smart man, some of the ways he did things, it used to sort of trigger me. Yeah. 
Now I get that. It doesn't trigger me so much because I realize the things that he did, I did too. Boom. Right? And and I was like judging and judging and judging. And I'm like, man, you know what? I did some of those things too. And once I realized that, then all of a sudden I didn't notice those things about him anymore. Yeah. I just I I turned I I shut off my TV service after he got elected. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another option. <laughs> I I couldn't do it, man. I, I I started watching the news with my kids, and at the time they were like eight and ten or something like that, or six and ten. And I was like, all right, we'll watch CNN for a week, and then we'll watch Fox for a week. You yeah, know? totally. That's how we're gonna get our balance. Yeah, we're equal doses on both sides. You know, it, it ended up basically being like drinking arsenic one week and then strychnine the next. Oh yeah, it's that, pretty much what ended up happening. My kids were just confused, like, "Dad, what the fuck is happening?" <laughs> so we just we just canceled TV service. That's how I handled Donald Trump. Um, but I think both parties are equally fucked. I, I just I think that there's the imbalance that we're talking about, the imbalance in the education system, the imbalance in the in the, in the scientific community, this left brain imbalance right um we've got like all of our our, our republican people or can be very very left brain left brain people yeah. and our our, our left-wing liberal people can be extremely right-brained mm-hmm. and be governed completely by their emotions um i think it's a circle well it is it's i a think it, i mean it's like when i look at someone like kim jong-un i'm like wait a minute i studied political science it's like is this fascism or communism I, right i can't tell, I can't tell because <laughs> like one step to the left and you know it looks one way and one step to the right and it looks another way but they both have the same outcome yeah yeah it, they manifest pretty pretty similarly they but, look real similar but that's why i think it's it's really important to to for well for parents for one right because we're, we're kind of in charge of raising kids you've got kids you know how yeah, it is I do. Mm-hmm. and you know to, to raise i have i have one on the way you know, I must be a real California husband now because I've got you know, one still yet to be born. And he'll be born, and he's going to be called William, and he's going to be born in just a month. Are you serious? Yes. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations, I know. man. You're like, dude, you got too much gray hair for that. You're going to be that grandpa driving. Fuck, no, that's awesome. You're going to have the, <laughs> you're gonna have the best time. Yeah, the best time doing fucking I math equations. It's my first, my first son. So I have two yeah. daughters. He better learn to count by the time he's like three oh, days. You know old. what? I, I, he's he's gonna be. He'll probably be you know watching, uh, you know, number file videos uh, <laughs> by the time he's only two or three years old. <laughs> you are you playing like old 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 Tesla lectures and stuff to to your wife's belly? Yeah, totally. Just like, just totally right. Put the speaker up there. It's got like an old. It was recorded on a phonograph. Mm-hmm. You just put that up against her stomach. Jesus, can't imagine what it's like being in your house. You know, speaking of Tesla and Walter Russell, uh, they, they were, were friends. friends. Yeah, they were friends. Yeah, and uh, we said that in stereo. That, that was, was pretty badass. Cool. Hey, badass. did, did uh, I heard somebody say something? You may or may not know this for sure, but I've heard that Walter gave Tesla a copy. I assume of the Universal mm-hmm. One, mm-hmm. and Tesla said, "Lock it up." Yeah, he gave him more than just the Universal One, but he said, lock up your work for a thousand years until the world's ready for it, because yeah. the world is not ready for this, this understanding. And, and anyone that I've ever talked to that really studied Walter Russell's work um, comes away with this overwhelming sense of, wow, that really resonates. It's so simple. It's polymathic. And, and Walter Russell was probably the, he was referred to as the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. And, um, you know, he was known more for his artistry, just like Da Vinci probably is known more for his artistry. Than I like what, he, what, what, what Walter Russell said. He said that most people, he said, 
Tesla is an artist who most people see as a scientist. Mm-hmm. And I'm a scientist who most people see as an artist. Correct. I think that was awesome. Yeah. No, it's it's very true. I, I think Walter was, uh, he's a remarkable person, really remarkable person. And um, the work that comes out in his books, The Universal One, uh, his Secret of Light book is outstanding. Uh, the Divine Iliad is also profound. And I, I studied all of these books over 2014, 2015, 2016. And I have to say that uh, of all the things I've ever read, these have been probably the most seminal uh, of works in understanding what I consider to be the the true and correct uh, cosmology that is evolving and changing. One of the things that I discovered recently, and and I'm about to publish several more papers, I published this paper at Cornell University uh, Press uh, on on their website, um, which was solving one of the biggest problems in mathematics for thousands of years never been solved, which is a prime number pattern. And we're all taught in school, grade school, you know, junior high, that there's no prime number pattern. And what I, what I found was that there indeed is, and there's a new type of prime number that's non-prime, but acts like a prime number because it's on the same spoke as a prime number on a 24 hour clock arrangement. Now, just to be clear, for, for again, mm-hmm. for the non-mathematicians, which I assume constitute most of our audience, I don't know how many mathematicians we have listening right now, but uh, the prime number pattern that you're talking about yeah. is a big deal. And for thousands of years, yeah. this has been an, an understanding that we do not have a pattern. Yeah, and that's why all encryptions are based on... They're not all your email encryptions, password encryptions, bank encryptions, everything. nuclear codes, everything. Which, by the way, when I discovered this, I did not know that because I didn't really know anything about encryption. Yeah. Um, I was doing it because I was working with uh, Nassim Haramain and the Taurus Tech team. And uh, they had said, hey, look at some of these patterns. And we're trying to figure out how gravity works and electromagnetism. And maybe there's this sort of like unified physics we can come up That's with. That's what JC and I do when we get together. <laughs> right. So I started working on patterns um, and and felt that 24 was kind of an important number, not only because we have 24 hours in a day, but Fibonacci numbers when viewed in digital root analysis, which should be a digital root of a number is simply to take the number and add it within itself. So the number 27 would have a digital root of nine because two and seven together equals nine. That's a digital nine. root. That's a digital that's okay. root. That's okay. That's a good term for me to know. That's a I digital that. root. Now, I number theorists use digital root from time to time to identify patterns. So every number, no matter how big the number is, could be uh, distilled down to one of nine numbers, right? One through nine. So, you know, for example, 41 would have a digital root of five. Four plus one equals five. Now, if you look at all geometry... Right, all geometry. What, what if you go bigger than nine with the digital root, like like uh, eighty-seven? Okay, so 15. eight plus seven is fifteen. Do you one reduce plus that five down to six? six? So you do. Re- it's you so do you reduce, reduce it, it all the way down. You reduce it all the oh, way down. Oh man, I'm going to do this on the plane ride the whole way home. Right. So one of the things you can do is you know Fibonacci numbers start with one plus one, right? Equals two. Yep. Add the last two number. plus one equals three. Add the last number. Three plus two equals five. So the next Fibonacci number would then eight. be eight then 13, then 21, then 34, then 55, then 89, then 144. And 144 is the, is the 12th Fibonacci, uh, Fibonacci number in the series, right? So what I noticed was that if I continue that cycle, and of course 144 would have a digital root of nine, yep. one plus four plus four, right? 
And what I noticed is that the pattern of numbers repeats every 24 Fibonacci numbers. No shit. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe there's something fundamental to 24. And I knew six was important. And I knew Tesla had said three, six, and nine are important numbers, right? That the secrets of the universe can be found in the numbers three, six, and nine. So I thought, well, let me put numbers in a spiral around 24 positional points. It's like a 24-hour clock. So I did. So I put them in 24, then went to 48, then 72. This is just like a spiral that's expanding out, right? Numbers getting bigger and bigger. So at the northern axis, you would have 24, then we go 48, then 72, then 96, then 120, right? And so on. And do it infinitely. And see where the prime numbers sit. And so what I found was that at 1 o'clock on the 24-hour clock, at 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, and at 11 o'clock and 13 o'clock, and 17 and 19 and 23 o'clock, all those positions are the only places that prime numbers, with the exception of the numbers 2 and 3, ever show up. They don't show up anywhere else on the chart. And I was fascinated not just by the prime numbers being on only those spokes, but and there was a fellow that wrote a book about this called The God Code. Uh, his name was uh, Peter Plichta. I had not read the book before. I, I saw it referenced in a book by Talal Guanam, who was just on this conference call with us. And, uh, and I had read his book, which is like, you know, thick, and it's on number theory, and I used to, you know, read it on an airplane type of thing, and people would look at me like, what the heck are you reading? And after I read the book, I, I, I sought him out and called him up, and I said, hey, uh, Professor Guanam, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And I said, I said, I loved your book, but I found five mistakes. <laughs> And he said, what are the mistakes? I'm sure he's never, of course, he'd probably heard that before. And I told him the mistakes. And he's like, I'm going to fly out and meet with you. So within a week, uh, we had a deal that he would leave Saudi Arabia and, and the university environment and come and work with me. And so he moved to Canada, right? And so he couldn't move to the United States because it's difficult from an immigration perspective. Sure. But, but what I found was on this 24-hour clock, what I really wanted to understand was where is the language that connects all math constants? It just so happens I found the prime number pattern. So I was looking for pi and phi, the golden number. I was looking for alpha and for Euler. Processional numbers and shit. Omega and all these kinds of numbers and, and how these numbers as verbs work together, right? Because in a verb, I, I could take a noun like text, the word text, and I could put an ing on the end of it, texting. It's an unfinished action. Yeah. Right. Oh, I could turn it into a gerund. I could say to text. Right. You remember grammatical classes when you're in junior high. Sure. So I thought irrationality would imply an unfinished action. That makes sense. So circle could turn into a verb by saying circling. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like texting yep. takes a noun and turns into a verb. So I thought, well, the irrationality is this infinite number series that kids memorize in high school. And so many people are so focused on, particularly reductionistic, sort of like left brain, pure mathematician type thinkers. And so I was on the hunt to find the pattern of the verbs because that's how I learned languages. I'd always learn verbs first because I could always throw in the nouns. Right. And as long as I knew how to conjugate them in the verbs or wave conjugations in the case of numbers, then I could communicate. I could throw in a word like in Japan, the word for computer is computer, right? 
not exactly that difficult. You could throw in, because most <laughs> cultures, languages, they study English and they know the nouns like crazy, but they're horrible at the verbs. So I always focus on the learning the verbs and learning how to conjugate the verbs correctly. And then I can always throw in English nouns and pronounce it in their local, you know, sort of accent. And, and it would work. I'm telling you it would work. And, and this is why he speaks eight languages. This is why I speak exactly. Computer. That's, that's right. computer in French. <laughs> and then computer. Well, actually, France doesn't even use the word computer. Although they it's, understand it, they say ordinateur. Ordinateur, exactement. So, so basically, I was looking for this in the 24-hour clock. And I plotted the prime numbers just as a reference point. So then I started thinking, I wonder if the numbers that are between the primes, between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock and 11 o'clock and 13 o'clock and 17 and 19, what are those numbers? And then I found that every one of those numbers were math constants. Really? As related to 360 degrees and as related to 432. So you just reverse engineered that and found the pattern there. Yep, and found many, many And then eliminate where the prime numbers aren't. Right, and then I looked at all the numbers that weren't prime, and I said, what about these numbers has a common characteristic as the prime numbers. And prime numbers are defined as numbers that are di divisible only by one in themselves, right? Mm -hmm. right? So the number seven is a prime number. You can't break it into smaller bits of whole numbers. You can only multiply one times seven. Yeah. That's it. And what I found was that the numbers that were not prime, but in the same spokes at five and seven o'clock, 11 and 13, 17, 19, 23, and then one o'clock, were actually divisible only by prime numbers greater than the number five. And so when I realized that all numbers in those same spokes would only be either prime or this other number that's divisible only by primes, then I thought, wow, I can derive an exclusion equation if I can figure out how to generate these numbers that are not prime but have prime characteristic associated with them, then every number that I can't generate must be prime. Yep. And we ran it on a laptop computer, and within a few seconds, we had the first trillion integers analyzed, and every single prime number predicted was correct. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you do with your free time when you got ADD to the max. <laughs> Jesus. So it was, uh, and, and interestingly, I discovered this within a few weeks after the my last night in the Great Pyramid, where I was there by Just myself. Just switched you on. Went in the, and went, went I laid can't down say that it's connected. I can't say it's connected, but what I can say is just maybe, I don't know. Um, I believe that, and there's so much more that's coming out of this now. We have several new papers that are about to get published in. Yeah, what's happening with it? That, that's my thing. What's, what are you doing with it? Well, one of the things we discovered is I discovered, first of all, that all math constants actually are just mirror reflections of the same number, 137 and a half. Really? Yep. So you might say, well, how is 137 and a half related to anything other than 137 and a half? Well, first of all, we know that everything in organic chemistry is pentagons merging with hexagons. If you remember chemistry class, you remember everything. Oh, your, DNA your organic and, hydrocarbons were all like yeah, hexagons. Right, and, pentagons, hexagons, yeah, yeah. right, marriages. And in alchemy as well, it's all, the pentagon represents the microcosm, the hexagon represents the macrocosm, right? Sort of the as above, so below, but separating it slightly, mm -hmm. right? And interestingly, if, if you take a circle and you inscribe a hexagon within that circle, 
and then you inscribe another circle within that hexagon, and then you inscribe another pentagon within the circle inscribed within the hexagon, right? The length of the side of the hexagon will be identical to the length of the side of the pentagon inscribed within the circle inscribed within it. So that is a natural marriage. That 5-6 relationship is a natural uh, numerical number theory marriage, right, of a wave propagation that defines for us the world around us. We may not recognize that in that way, right? And that's just a, a way of discussing a language of our own DNA. But when you, when you understand that five, six relationship, and, and precisely actually 5.16, so 5.16 cubed is 137. 5.16 cubed is 137. Now, as I sort of figured out that, okay, the first angle of a pentagon is 72 degrees. It's at the 72 degree point, right? And, and it's 108 degrees is the inner angle, right? Or the interior angle. And you also would have to notice that, this just as an aside, every regular polygon in geometry always has a sum of angles that's equal to a number with a digital root that equals nine. Are you serious? Without exception. That's bananas. So, so like a like a pentagon's got five internal angles. What's yes. the total in um, degree? Five hundred forty. Five plus four is nine. That's right. So give me the next one. What's after a pentagon? So then, hexagon. Let's do a hexagon. Six. Seven hundred twenty. Seven plus two is nine. What's, what what uh, about the next one? A heptagon. Nine hundred. Nine. Dodecahedron. Dodecahedron oh, is uh, is is also six thousand four hundred eighty, which also equals nine eighteen. It happens for all polygons what does that mean? and all platonic solids is, is and this all the, Archimedean solids without is this exception. Is Tesla thing? This is that 369 thing he's talking about? That's, I think Tesla's a pretty smart dude. I think so. So what I can tell you is that every geometry must equal nine. Therefore, every musical note in Hertz frequency must also equal nine. Every musical note in Hertz frequency if must equal nine. If geometry is frozen sound. Yeah. Like to get closed off perfect geometries, you must have musical so notes. All the proper notes. So, like 432 is an A, and 4, four plus, plus 3 is 2, plus two, seven two equals nine. 9. Give me another note. What's another? What's well, C the tuning standard we use today is 440 hertz, which is 8. So, it's disharmonic? It doesn't equal 9. So, it can't make perfect geometry. Okay. So like so, my my guitar at home, you know, it's tuned like your standard tuning, mm -hmm, E A D G B E. Mm -hmm. So and remember four thirty two squared is light speed. Yeah, which is still blowing my mind. Okay. So so let's just go back before we spend more time on the music yeah, yeah. for a moment. So let's take that one thirty seven and a half and divide it by four thirty two. Okay. Okay. So now in fact, let's take this and think about it in a little different way. A circle with a diameter of 137 and a half has a circumference of what? To find that, you would just take pi, 3.1415926 times 432 and a half, or sorry, times 137 and a half. Divided by two. Right. No, no, because this is a diameter. Okay, so yeah. You don't have to divide by two. That'd be true if it was a radius. Yep. Gives you a circumference of 432. 
So 137 and a half divided by 432 gives me one over pi. Yeah, I knew that already. So now- Just making sure you knew. The golden angle is through a simple transformation. And that 432 is the same angle, reference point, angle of incidence on the Pentagon, 72, multiply it by six to give us the hexagonal representation. So now you take that 137 and a half, divide it by 432, and you've got one over pi. I could take that same 137 and a half, I subtract it from 360, I get 222.5, which is 0.618, right? And one minus, right, one, uh, one minus 0.618 equals 0.3819 or 0.382. 0.382 times 360, of course, is 137 and a half. Now, I could take that and now apply that and say, okay, the one over X of 0.3819, right, which is the same ratio of the 360, one over that number equals 2.618, which is phi squared. These are very simple transformations that are giving me these numbers. Now, I remember I told you the sacred cubit in Egypt was 1.718. Yep. Right? So if I take 0.1718 and multiply it by 360, what do I get? 61.8. That's phi. 618. So every single math constant is connected to every other math constant. We think of constants as being totally separate and disconnected. Right. Just like we think of all the people around us as being separate and disconnected from ourselves. In fact, we use the term, these are constants. They are unchangeable. They are fixed, irrational, infinite values that are wholly different from something else. And what I'm telling you is that the Euler number, minus one, which is that 1.718, and the sacred cubit is also phi just multiplied by 360. It's the same number, just a different mirror reflections. It's like there's a divine pattern hmm. in all of it. You think? Yeah. I was, I, was, I was really thinking it was a coincidence this whole time. but uh, So we're about to publish that paper too. That's exciting. That shows all the mirror reflections in a, a new paper called The Wave Constant Theory. And Who's publishing that? Uh, we don't know yet. We're going to submit it for peer review. Yeah. And, so you and, and Sam and the guys? Uh, it's going to be me and Talal, yeah. uh, generally. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that this is going to be profound. The, the, the change this brings to the, the, our understanding of mathematics and this, that these verbs and their conjugations are actually from the same reflections, simple transformations, very simple transforms, coming all from the number one. The universal one. There you go with Walter again. Um, you know, this is important stuff. And we talked about the quadrivium and how, you know, I, as a dad, I'm always going back to my kids, right? I'm always thinking about- can, I'm gonna have to boogie here in a minute. So well, right, we can come back to this in the morning, but- Timing uh, wise, let's do, mm -hmm. let's do that. You wanna bring this back in the morning? Yeah, sure. Let's do this. Absolutely. Let's, that way you can get out of here and do your thing. Yep. Uh, that's going to be it for today, guys. We'll go ahead and wrap it up. Why not? Because we'll we'll do a part two tomorrow. Absolutely. And for the day, for today, we appreciate you, man. Very Thank much. You. It's been a great conversation. Absolutely. Um, you guys, we're signing off. Peace, love, and light be with you. And uh, stick around for part two. Like, share, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Awesome. Thanks so much. 
Aside and say 